I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, and today our guest is Jim Baresi, the head of the financial services practice at Squire Patent Bots. Jim, thanks for joining us. David, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast, your background, your work at U.S. Bancorp, and then return to private practice and what you learned from the in-house experience, what we're seeing now in financial services and commercial bank M&A, regulatory issues that are particularly important in that sector now, and then a little bit about how you decompress. So with that, tell us about yourself, how you got into bank M&A and financial services. Sure. Thank you. So I'm just a, a kid from Detroit. I grew up in an Italian family in a, a blue-collar town in a blue-collar school environment. And as a child, I had a, a friend whose dad was a prosecuting attorney, and that was my introduction to law. I never dreamed that would lead to financial services. But I would say within a couple of years of starting to practice, it dawned on me pretty clearly that financial services was a great place for a lawyer because it is such a heavily regulated industry and the nature of the business itself is transactional in orientation. And I just thought it was a place that provided a great opportunity for lawyers to add value. And I had studied finance as an undergrad and, and was genuinely interested in the field and was fortunate enough to find my way there. In the late 90s, I left my private practice in New York City, where I was doing work for a predecessor to US Bancorp and had the opportunity to join at the very early stages of a huge MA wave and become the internal lawyer largely responsible for servicing our M&A and capital activity. And it was just an incredible experience that we can talk more about and how that has influenced what we've done. But that, I think, set my career in a very different direction and was an experience that has added tremendous value to what I've done since then. And so what did you learn at U.S. Bank Corp, both about the more technical legal aspects of bank M&A and about the broader issues involved in acquiring banks, integrating them, and how to think about that from the outset of evaluating a potential target? Great question. So I joined at a time when what is now U.S. Bank Corp was doubling in size every six months. And it was probably the most prolific acquirer of its generation. Were you acquiring a lot of small banks or larger banks or a mix? Great question. A mix. And banks and non-banks as well. So we did a number of merger of equals transactions where we essentially acquired enterprises larger than ourselves as well as fill-in acquisitions of banks and a host of non-bank financial businesses, there was never a dull moment. It, we just had an unbelievable management team with two industry icons who served as back-to-back -back CEOs there and Jerry Grundhofer and Richard Davis. And both were incredibly ambitious, but disciplined and focused really hard workers, and they were not at all afraid to provide opportunity to, in my case, a young person who was hungry. And it was just an incredible opportunity to, to soak things up like a sponge, including, as you were suggesting, the business side 
of those transactions in understanding the strategic importance of evaluating a transaction, the financial issues associated with evaluating a transaction. And then most importantly, that all the hard work really begins after closing when you have to integrate when lawyers are typically long gone. And did you think differently about those three types of acquisitions, the merger of equals, the smaller, in some cases, maybe very small acquisition of a commercial bank, and then the acquisition of something in financial services that was not a commercial bank? How did you look at those three kinds of possible deals? Very differently, depending on circumstance. And I would say we still do that today. And transactions of those types are a core component of my day-to-day practice. And you know, right now, I have transactions pending that fit all three of those buckets. MOEs are really difficult to execute. Obviously, there are social issues that are challenging. There are huge cultural issues about the implications on the culture of an organization. And they also present incredible opportunities to move an organization forward. One thing I learned from Richard in particular was to adopt the best practices and people from each organization and meld those in a way that is best suited to the combined enterprise as opposed to coming in with a position of, well, this is how we do things. And and we see many institutions that do that, but typically not the most successful acquirers. Contrast that, for example, with a fill-in acquisition that might be small and might largely be about cost saves or something of that nature where you don't have the same level of strategic issues per se, but execution is very important. And you know, one of the things, back to the comment about opportunities for lawyers in a heavily regulated industry, you have to be careful about what deals you do in this space because you don't have an unlimited supply of arrows in your quiver, right? Regulators will only allow you to grow so far so fast. So it's very, very important in analyzing a transaction to understand how it fits into the strategic plan and what it might do to disqualify you from a future deal. And you obviously moved back to private practice from U.S. Bank Corp. Tell us about that transition and what you find stimulating about being in a law firm when you presumably could have a role in a bank if if that was appealing to you. Sure, sure. Lots of opportunities like that have presented and continue to present themselves. But I left at a time when we had, from my lawyer's perspective, if you will, we sort of did one deal too many. My boss's position was eliminated. M&A was winding down in the financial services space. And there were fewer interesting opportunities inside for deal lawyers, or at least in that environment in that day. This is around 2007, 2008. Yeah, early, early Where- 2000s, pre-crisis. Pre-crisis, okay. So we elected to come back to private practice in I had a sort of an entrepreneurial itch to scratch having lived inside, and there was an opportunity to assume responsibility for a practice where you would get to set the strategy and have a significant impact on operating that practice. And that was really attractive. And then, of course, the financial crisis came along and threw us a giant curveball. And one of the things that I did not expect, we ended up undertaking a very, very big engagement for the Department of Treasury in September of 2008, which I led. 
And I spent a lot of time in Washington and a tremendous amount of time working with the government on financial crisis, several financial crisis matters. And that rounded out the experience and and gave me what I would describe as the Washington or maybe the K Street experience or exposure. If now you, you look at the Wall Street, the K Street and the Main Street elements of our triangle here. And I think all those experiences make us much better lawyers here on our team and give us a different view of the world compared to our competitors who've spent their entire life inside a law firm in New York City without the same frame of reference for you know what they might call flyover country, for example. So a couple of questions. One, how would you compare managing a team at a law firm versus managing within a bank? I mean, presumably the basic skills are the same, but they're very different environments and very different kinds of people. They are very different. It is very different. There's no question. And I would say in most law firms, ours included, lines of reporting are not quite so clear. There's more autonomy among lawyers than in the context of a financial institution where those lines are very clear. In my view, one of the factors that makes it difficult to manage a law firm is that outside lawyers can't have non-compete agreements. And if you look at our client base, most clients, whether they be commercial or investment banks or private equity funds or what have you, would look at you askance if you said, no, we don't have non-competes, but you can't. And that requires managing with a more strategic approach and working to find buy-in and collaboration. And we have a very collaborative environment here, which I think is crucial. And then what did you learn from your time in-house that's affected how you practice as an M&A lawyer today? Oh, it it had a humongous impact on the way we practice today. And it's not just me. I mean, I have very intentionally built our team here to include a number of people like me who have significant in-house experience, as well as a large number of people who spent most of their career inside regulatory agencies in the bank or insurance space. And among other things, I think we have, for the most part, a much finer focus on the strategic plans of our clients and understanding their operations. So when we're working on a project with a client, we are very much focused on becoming part of the internal team and making sure that we are delivering legal service, not in a vacuum, but in a way that is meshed with the client's operations and their strategic plans. So an illustration, when conducting due diligence, we may be very thoughtful up front about what the client really cares about as opposed to just our standard diligence list. We would become part of the business diligence team at a client in a way that enables us to recognize that something we might come across might be really helpful to a business member of the diligence team. When we analyze issues, we think about post-closing integration, which is really the hard part of these transactions in a way that I think most outside lawyers don't. I would also highlight not just the in-house experience. I think the in-house experience is relevant to the following point as well. But I think just life on Main Street and living on Main Street gives you what I call Main Street sensibilities and the focus on listening on being able to disagree with your counterparty in a way that is not necessarily combative or disagreeable. 
to help facilitate clients' objectives, understanding the need and the importance of delivering more value than bill at the end of the day, that I think you just develop those skills if you're in-house or if you spend a significant time on Main Street. So as you've built out your team, it sounds like you've very consciously looked for people with in-house experience and Washington experience, but people who also want to be at a law firm and don't necessarily want to spend their entire career in-house. Do you find that's a personality type that that clearly works really well for some people and then other people you talk to and you think this is a really good lawyer, but this person is probably going to be happier in-house or in government than in private practice? It is. There's a personality type. We want people who are very high energy. We want people who are entrepreneurial. And sometimes life in a regulated enterprise for a long period of time can beat the entrepreneur gene out of you. So it does take the right fit, but it is a great opportunity. And without naming anyone, I'm in discussions right now with someone who is the general counsel of a significant financial services enterprise and was the deputy general counsel of a major financial institution who, through some M&A activity at organizations he's been in, has seen dead ends materialize for other people in his organization. And I think he recognizes that in a law firm, you maybe have opportunity to control your own destiny more and appreciates that and is willing to bet on himself. And he has lots of questions, of course, about the opportunity to sort of scratch the business itch and and confirm that you can, in fact, be strategic in your job. And we structure ours to permit that. And then what are you seeing now in commercial bank M&A and financial services M&A more broadly? Regulatory environment is much more difficult. And that's really not a surprise in the wake of an election. But that's something that I think is a real challenge for some and will also present opportunities for experienced acquirers who are best in class, if you will, from a regulatory perspective and able to convince targets about their ability to navigate that path quickly and without hiccup, if you will. The low for long rate environment has obviously created a lot of challenges. And as things like in banking, the PPP program and the like roll off, I think you see many people looking into headwinds in 2022 and evaluating acquisitions in that context and and trying to understand the impact of the, the regulatory environment I described. As a reporter, and I talk about this with my editor fairly often and have done so for years, one of the things you always look for in M&A is succession issues at a potential target that, in essence, are solved by a sale. It seems like in commercial bank M&A, that is particularly an issue because you went essentially from 2008 into the late teens with very little M&A. It was very hard to do a bank deal of over a billion dollars. Are you seeing that dynamic play out? And how long do you think that has to play out where you're going to look at financial institutions that have management teams that are in their 60s that the succession plan will really be to sell? Yes. Look, the last couple of years have been quite active. And I think, but for my comments on the regulatory environment, the next couple of years should be very active. There are a whole host of market forces that are pushing it. We talked about low for long. Technology is another. The need to spend on technology 
and to find efficiencies is extreme and consolidation permits scale and, and all of those things. And those are big incentives. You do have an aging workforce and many institutions, particularly smaller ones, just don't have the depth of management to have an internal succession plan that really works. And M&A is an answer for that. But it will be very interesting to see what happens from a regulatory perspective. I think smaller deals probably won't be too negatively affected on the regulatory front, although that remains to be seen. And my view is similar with, I think, a widely held view that over the next several years, it will become more difficult to do larger transactions. And then in other subsectors of financial services, insurance, uh, fintech, what are you seeing there? We see some insurance transactions. There are fewer insurance transactions than bank transactions, but it's been a reasonably active time in the insurance space. And we've certainly been very active in that space as well. Fintech is the place that attracts a tremendous amount of attention these days. And I think from a deal volume perspective, will continue to grow. Those transactions are oftentimes joint ventures, equity joint ventures, sometimes contractual joint ventures. With growing frequency, we see whole acquisitions of financial technology companies by more mature established financial institutions, whether they be banks or insurance companies or asset managers. But there's tremendous activity in fintech. The multiples are really high, which attracts a lot of capital to the space. Of course, I would say in my experience, most lawyers and most investment bankers haven't earned as much money in fintech M&A as they have in other segments of the business. But we're all very focused on it because we know it's the future. And then finally, what do you do when you're not doing financial services, MNA? So that takes a ton of my time, that and the capital work that I do. And I'm very close with my family and do a lot of family activity. But over the, you know, post COVID, I've gotten into hiking. We had this split geography where my wife and I live in Washington and in Cincinnati. And we have this great place in Ohio that's, you know, lots of land and horse trails and things like that. And I do a lot of hiking now. And in the past year or so, the golf bug has bitten me. So I have really started to get into golf. But I would say from maybe a more interesting perspective, I am an active member of the Knights of Malta. And the Knights of Malta has been really, really actively involved in addressing COVID-related issues in impoverished areas, particularly outside the United States. And it's been really rewarding to have opportunities to help most often with things like procurement of PPP and the delivery of other services. There are some really interesting business diplomacy activities developing in the Knights of Malta that frankly should be more robust today than they are, but COVID has side-railed some of that just due to the restrictions on travel. But that is really interesting and more targeted towards delivering resources and education to essentially help teach less fortunate people to fish, so to speak, in, in a variety of jurisdictions. And that's, that's really rewarding and fun. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. David, thank you. I appreciate the time. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus.